You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Levesay from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history, a journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at historyofthesecondworldwar.com. Hey everyone, welcome to episode number 164 of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all, thanks for tuning into the podcast. With this episode, we'll continue working our way through the campaign known as the Seven Days Battles. Each of the battles in the campaign took place just to the east of Richmond, the Confederate capital. But after the last episode, we realized that in that show, we hadn't done a great job of describing the area over which the action was taking place. So we want to fix that here at the start of this episode. Exactly. And so, as always, we recommend that you pick up a Civil War atlas so you can check out a map and see where these campaigns and battles that we talk about on the podcast took place. But we realize that you might perhaps be listening to the podcast any time or place, and it's not convenient to have your Civil War atlas open in front of you, like maybe if you're driving to work or something. Uh, So you need to picture in your mind's eye where the action is taking place. And so the layout of the map where the Seven Days Battles took place is actually pretty simple. You can picture in your mind's eye that Richmond is just off to the west, or left. Then to the east of Richmond, just a few miles away, is Mechanicsville, on the north bank of the Chickahominy River. The Battle of Mechanicsville took place on June 26th, and the next day, the 27th, was the Battle of Gaines's Mill. And Gaines's Mill was just to the east of Mechanicsville, so both of those battles took place on the north side of the Chickahominy. But then in the last episode, the action shifted south of the river with the Battle of Savage Station, which took place on Sunday, June 29th. Savage Station, by the way, was a stop on the York River Railroad. Then on the map in your mind's eye, you can picture White Oak Swamp just to the south of Savage Station. And below or to the south of White Oak Swamp was the crucial crossroads at Glendale. And several miles below, or to the south, of the crossroads at Glendale was Malvern Hill. Malvern Hill was located on the north bank of the James River. And a stone's throw downstream from Malvern Hill was Haxel's Landing. So, now that the action has shifted south of the Chickahominy, as the Army of the Potomac is retreating southward to the James River, hopefully it's fairly easy to picture, on the map in your mind's eye, from top to bottom, Savage Station, then White Oak Swamp, then Glendale, and then Malvern Hill, with Malvern Hill being on the north bank of the James River. So there you go.
As y'all recall, in order to cover the Army's retreat, the federal troops at Savage Station fought off Confederate attacks on Sunday, June 29, 1862. After darkness put an end to the fighting, the Federals resumed their withdrawal, leaving behind, at McClellan's orders, some 2,500 sick and wounded Union soldiers in the Savage Station Field Hospital. The long night march following the clash at Savage Station managed to get all of McClellan's army south of White Oak Swamp by mid-morning on Monday, June 30th. But although the Army of the Potomac had safely crossed White Oak Swamp, Little Mac knew he had to protect the line of retreat for one more day to let the Army's supply trains reach the James River in safety. And so the key point on Monday would be the crossroads village of Glendale. On June 30th, Erasmus Key's 4th Corps and Fitz John Porter's 5th Corps had already reached Malvern Hill. The Army's other three corps, consisting of seven divisions, was still en route. The two divisions of William Franklin's 6th Corps, under Slocum and Baldy Smith, were positioned to cover the exits from White Oak Swamp. The other five federal divisions were deployed three miles south of the swamp on either side of the crucial crossroads at Glendale. One of Fitzjohn Porter's divisions, George McCall's Pennsylvania Reserves, was actually not at Malvern Hill, but still helping guard the Army's line of retreat at Glendale. The crossroads, situated halfway between White Oak Swamp and Malvern Hill, was vulnerable to attack from the west. It also constituted a dangerous bottleneck for the Federal line of retreat, as the Army's supply trains and combat units converged to funnel down the Willis Church Road. To protect the vital crossroads, McCall's Pennsylvanians were dug in facing west, the direction from which the rebels were expected, and the two divisions of Samuel Heinzelman's Third Corps were split up, with one posted on each side of McCall. Joe Hooker was on McCall's left, while Phil Kearney was posted on McCall's right. The divisions of Bull Sumner's 2nd Corps were also split up, with Israel B. Richardson's division on Baldy Smith's left and John Sedgwick's division posted to the left and rear of McCall's position. As the Union soldiers took their positions to cover the exits from White Oak Swamp and to defend the crossroads at Glendale, the never-ending line of wagons from the Army's supply trains continued passing south down the Willis Church Road. Although we just neatly summarized the federal deployment, it's important to understand that the formations actually weren't deliberately arranged, so the Union defensive line wasn't continuous. Some units were posted in advance of others, and few commanders knew exactly who was on either side of them. On what was shaping up to be a blistering hot day, in fact it was remembered as the hottest of the entire campaign by the soldiers, All the Federals expected that there would be some hard fighting, but they didn't know exactly who they would be fighting alongside. In theory, the three corps arranged around Glendale could have fought effectively if there had been one hand guiding them, but in reality it proved to be a case of every general shifting for himself. Division commanders would fight their own battles, with only occasional cooperation with those around them. This confused situation occurred because of the irresponsible absence of leadership by the Army's commander. 
with his entire army stretched out over several miles between White Oak Swamp and the James River, George McClellan was well aware that June 30th was a pivotal day. He believed that Robert E. Lee would stop at nothing to try to make this last day of June the last day of the Union Army. Little Mac knew he had to hold off the Confederate attacks for at least one more day before his army would be secure at the James River. Knowing all that was at stake, one would assume the army's commander would want to be present on the battlefield so that he could personally direct the fighting. But George McClellan didn't want to be anywhere near the scene of a potential disaster. His personal course of action on this Monday is difficult to explain for those who wish to think favorably of him. On Monday morning, after personally scouting the ground around the crossroads at Glendale, McClellan rode off with his staff to Haxel's Landing on the James, reaching that place about 10 a.m. By doing so, Little Mac effectively cut himself off from the army at Glendale. In fact, sometime after 3 p.m., he even boarded a gunboat, the USS Galena, steamed upstream to shell some Confederates, and then with his ship's captain had, quote, a good dinner with some good wine, end quote. All of this while his army was fighting for its life in the fields and woods around Glendale. Little Mac's habit during the campaign of absenting himself from from his army's battlefields didn't go unnoticed. Private Robert Knox Sneeden of Heinzelman's Third Corps remarked upon it, saying, quote, Why he left is a mystery. He generally places the troops on the eve of a battle, then goes off to the rear some miles away, leaving his generals to fight it out as best they can without his further assistance. End quote. Not only did McClellan refuse to personally be in charge of the battle at Glendale, but he also once again deliberately refused to appoint a commander in his place. As we mentioned previously regarding the fighting at Savage Station, Little Mac apparently chose this course since the senior corps commander was Sumner, for whom he felt only scorn. And so on June 30th, Little Mac left the army essentially leaderless. As one soldier bitterly noted after the war, quote, Curiously enough, there was almost always something for McClellan to do more important than to fight his own battles. End quote. Over the years, historians, and there have been some, who have tried to defend McClellan's decisions throughout the campaign, have difficulty justifying his behavior on June 30th. In even the most generous interpretation, McClellan's actions on this day were irresponsible, and in the least positive light, they are indications of cowardice. Stephen Sears, who has written a history of the peninsula in seven days, as well as a biography of McClellan, leans toward the latter explanation, saying that by Glendale, Little Mac had lost the courage to command. Sears argues that each day of the campaign had disheartened McClellan a little more, so that by June 30th, quote, the demoralization was complete. Exercising command in battle was now quite beyond him, and to avoid it, he deliberately fled the battlefield. While McClellan fled the battlefield, he left his soldiers on their own, baking in the heat. 
For some Union soldiers on June 30th, even combat provided an almost welcome distraction, taking their minds off the oppressive weather. One Minnesota soldier in Sedgwick's division wrote, quote, Each man seemed to think that he could not live 15 minutes from the burning sun that was shining and not a sign of any wind. As the Yankees tried to deal with what Mother Nature threw at them, they all waited anxiously to see what the Confederates would toss into the mix. On this steamy Monday morning, Robert E. Lee was busy trying to organize the Confederate pursuit and eventual attack. Lee, like McClellan, was aware that Glendale would be the crucial point on June 30th, and so it was at the vital crossroads that the rebel commander hoped to capture or destroy a significant part of the enemy army, which was the elusive goal he'd been seeking for some days now. Lee had formations converging on the crossroads from three directions, and he hoped that a combined attack could finally bring about the decisive results he'd been seeking. Lee wasn't the only Confederate officer to think so. After the war, E. Porter Alexander declared that there were only a few occasions during the conflict where a major military victory may have ended the war with Confederate independence. He said, quote, This chance of June 30th, 62, impresses me as the best of all. He further surmised that, quote, Never before or after did the fates put such a prize within our reach. To make the most of this opportunity, Lee put six separate units in motion. It all started at 3.30 a.m. on Monday morning when Stonewall Jackson, unable to sleep because of the storm, rode up to Magruder's headquarters and informed that stressed-out general that he had just put the Valley Army in motion to cross the Chickahominy. Magruder had spent the night up to that point preparing for a possible Union counterattack from Savage Station. At Jackson's news, he felt such relief that he went to bed for the first time in two days. Lee came to Magruder's headquarters at dawn and ordered Prince John to turn his troops around and move down the Darbytown Road, where he would act as a reserve force for Longstreet and A.P. Hill. Lee had decided that Stonewall Jackson would take up direct pursuit of the Yankees through the White Oak Swamp, and so after leaving Magruder, Lee went to meet with Jackson at Savage Station. The two generals stood apart from their aides, with Jackson talking in an excited way. Stonewall drew something on the ground with his boot. At the end of the conversation, Jackson stamped on the diagram, and those nearby heard him exclaim, We've got him. Lee and Jackson parted ways, and you assume they were in agreement as to what was to be done that day. Stonewall would pursue the Yankees through White Oak Swamp, and although no one knows exactly what Lee expected Jackson to do once he reached the stream that cut through the swamp, it's clear Lee expected an aggressive Stonewall to be an essential part of any successful battle on Monday. You certainly have to conclude that Lee expected Jackson to do more than he ultimately did. In a week of bad performances by Stonewall, June 30th is generally considered by both his own baffled soldiers and by historians as his poorest showing. At any rate, while Jackson moved south against the rear of McClellan's retreating army, Lee had four units designated to come in from the west and attack the Union flank. Theophilus Holmes' 7,000-man division had recently crossed over the James from south of the river. 
The nearly deaf 57-year-old North Carolinian marched his division east along the river road toward Malvern Hill. Though Holmes was on a path that would allow him to intercept the head of the retreating Yankee column, Lee didn't give him such orders. Holmes' men weren't veterans, and his force was too small to accomplish much against a federal corps. But Lee did intend for him to harass the enemy wagon train crossing Malvern Hill and hopefully prevent Union troops from rushing north to aid their comrades at Glendale. It was at Glendale that Robert E. Lee aimed his three remaining divisions to pierce and break the enemy line. Lee had Uge's 12,000-man division and the combined 20,000 men of Longstreet and A.P. Hill heading in that direction, with the promise of Magruder's 13,500-man force lending its weight and support if necessary. Lee expected Uge to open the battle by striking at Glendale from the northwest down the Charles City Road at about the same time that Stonewall Jackson would come in from the north, threatening the Union rear. While the enemy was engaged with these forces to their north and northwest, Longstreet and A.P. Hill would add their offensive punch by striking from the west along the Long Bridge Road. It was a solid plan, but as had been the case all week long, very little would go as Robert E. Lee had intended. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Uge began his march at first light with William Mahone's brigade in the lead. Mahone hadn't gone far when he encountered obstructions in the form of trees felled across the road. He estimated the obstacles continued for nearly a mile. While no problem for infantry, the trees would prevent artillery from passing. Mahone, who had been a railroad construction engineer before the war, convinced Uge, an old ordnance officer, that the best way to tackle the problem was to hack a new path through the woods, rather than clear the road they were on. It was an odd suggestion, but Uge agreed to it. Mahone's suggestion, and Uge's agreement to it, led to the so-called Battle of the Axes, in which Confederates hacked a path out of the woods for a mile, while Union axemen simultaneously felled further obstructions across the road. Needless to say, the progress of Uge's column slowed to a crawl. Uge sent a message to Lee, saying he had been a bit delayed, but he didn't relate the full extent of his situation. Remember, Lee had expected Uge's attack to be the signal for the start of the Army's concerted assault, 
Instead, Uger basically wouldn't get a single man into the fight that entire day. While Uger was failing in his role in Lee's plan for the day, Stonewall Jackson wasn't performing any better. Though he had finally crossed his force over the Chickahominy early Monday morning and met with Robert E. Lee shortly after daybreak, he didn't make very rapid progress in his five-mile march from Savage Station to White Oak Swamp Bridge. Much of this was because he allowed his troops to help themselves to the enormous amount of material the Federals had left behind at Savage Station. As y'all may recall, the Yankees had tried to burn as much as possible, but their efforts hadn't been entirely successful. The first of Jackson's units didn't reach the slope leading down to the swamp until shortly before noon. The road went down the slope to the destroyed bridge over the stream that cut through the swamp. On the far side of the stream, the ground rose to a crest about 300 or 400 yards away. There were some Union infantry and artillery on the hills east of the road, but the rebels' view of the west side was blocked by dense woods. The Confederates began setting up their own artillery on a hill north of the stream, and Stonewall Jackson waited until 31 guns had been positioned before he allowed them to open fire. Stonewall Jackson's artillery barrage burst forth at 2 p.m., and it scattered the Union troops who had been dozing across the way under the scorching sun. One Yankee lieutenant recalled that he was awakened, quote, by the thunder of artillery, the shriek of shells, and the horrid burning of their fragments. Hell seemed to have opened upon us, end quote. Franklin sent back word to Sumner at Glendale that he needed reinforcements because he was certain that such a barrage was the prelude to a large rebel ground attack. Sumner sent two brigades from Sedgwick's division to Franklin, but the Confederate attack never came. Under the cover of the bombardment, Jackson decided to cross the stream and scout the enemy's position. He ordered the 2nd Virginia Cavalry Regiment across the swamp to reconnoiter the Yankee position, but the unit's commander, Colonel Thomas Munford, said he doubted the horses could cross the deep stream. Stonewall ordered Munford to try it, and Stonewall, joined by D.H. Hill, followed the horsemen. Jackson and his brother-in-law stayed on the south side of the stream for just a few minutes before heavy fire from previously hidden Union infantry and artillery west of the road forced them to beat an undignified and hasty retreat back across the stream. Munford also had to get his men out of there, but he could no longer cross back over the stream without suffering heavy casualties, and so he steered his troopers off to the east to search for another way to cross. Less than a half a mile downstream, he found a little-used cow crossing. The crossing was undefended, and he sent word to Stonewall that any infantry that crossed there could appear undetected on the Yankees' right flank. But Jackson never responded to Munford's report. Munford later confessed that he never understood why Stonewall didn't take advantage of this opportunity. Munford said, quote, I know that I thought all the time that he could have crossed his infantry where we recrossed. I had seen his infantry cross far worse places, and I expected that he would attempt it, end quote. But that would not be the only opportunity Stonewall Jackson would let pass on this day. Jackson must have been mightily impressed with the strength of the Union position during his brief and frightening reconnaissance across the stream. 
so impressed that he immediately decided he wouldn't risk a crossing of the swamp. You have to believe that Robert E. Lee's conversation with Stonewall that morning didn't conclude with an order for Jackson to park his force north of the swamp and just annoy the Federals with artillery. But that's just what Stonewall did that afternoon. Lee certainly expected Jackson to pitch into the Union forces guarding the exits from the swamp and in that way complement the other rebel flank attacks, flank attacks at Glendale, but Stonewall chose to sit tight. A few days later, Jackson's staff was still debating Stonewall's behavior that day, and he justified his inaction by saying, quote, If General Lee had wanted me, he could have sent for me. End quote. One of Jackson's brigadiers, Wade Hampton, found another spot to cross the stream. Hampton, a South Carolinian who was one of the wealthiest men in the South, had been severely wounded at Seven Pines, but had returned to the Army and now commanded one of Whiting's brigades. He began scouting for a shallow spot to cross the stream, and about a quarter of a mile east of the bridge, that is, closer than Munford's cow path, Hampton found a narrow, shallow portion of the stream and crossed over. When he emerged on the other side, he advanced a short distance and found himself to the rear of the Yankees' defensive position. Hampton recrossed the stream and personally reported his discovery to Jackson, who seemed very interested in his report and asked if the crossing could be used by artillery as well as infantry. Hampton said he could bridge the stream so that infantry could easily cross, but not artillery. The Stonewall immediately ordered Hampton to do so, and after a couple of hours of back-breaking work in the brutal heat, Hampton's men had erected a crude bridge across the stream. When he rode back to tell Jackson the job was done, he found Stonewall sitting on a log with his eyes closed and his cap drawn low. Hampton reported that the bridge was finished and the Yankees could still be taken by surprise, but Stonewall seemed to be in a daze and made no response. When Hampton offered to lead his brigade across the bridge, Jackson rose and walked away, still without saying a word. Not knowing what to make of this, and getting no help from Stonewall's staff, who were just as confused by their chief's behavior, Hampton stood there awkwardly for a few minutes before returning to his brigade to await orders that never came. Soon after Hampton departed, Jackson lay down under a tree and went to sleep. Later that afternoon, Jackson couldn't be easily awakened. He even fell asleep eating his supper that evening. During the meal, though, he roused himself long enough to say to his staff, quote, Now, gentlemen, let us at once to bed and rise with the dawn and see if tomorrow we cannot do something. End quote. The last part of Stonewall's suppertime declaration suggests that even he recognized that his performance on June 30th had been lacking. Stonewall Jackson's inaction on June 30th perplexed many of his officers and has baffled historians. Historians have largely accepted the suggestion that Jackson's failure at White Oak Swamp was due to his reaching the end of his physical endurance. But however much some wish to blame Stonewall's fatigue for his failures during the seven days, D.H. Hill, Jackson's brother-in-law and one of his division commanders, knew Stonewall as well as any officer, and he dismissed physical exhaustion as a determining factor, 
and he suggested that Jackson performed better as an independent commander than he did when subordinate to another general. Hill wasn't suggesting that Jackson deliberately performed poorly because he was frustrated to find himself under Robert E. Lee's command, but there's no disguising that Stonewall did perform much less dynamically in his first campaign under Lee's direction than he did when exercising independent command out in the Shenandoah Valley. Though Jackson greatly respected Lee, he didn't yet implicitly understand Robert E. Lee's orders and expectations. That understanding would come with time, and Stonewall would perform well, even sensationally, in future battles with Lee. But that relationship hadn't been established here in the week of battles outside Richmond. We think the truth of the matter with regard to Jackson's poor performance during the seven days lies somewhere between the two explanations. That is, crushing fatigue had finally led Stonewall to reach the end of his physical endurance, and here that personal frailty was combined with a professional failing because he was not yet used to serving under Robert E. Lee, and so he showed hesitancy and a lack of initiative and aggressiveness that those who had been with him in the valley found baffling. At any rate, on Monday, June 30th, Jackson ought to have at least tied down the Union troops to his front and prevented them from reinforcing their western flank guarding the Glendale crossroads. But he didn't do even that much. And as a result, four brigades, that is nearly 10,000 Federals, left his front and ended up fighting Longstreet and A.P. Hill. And that seems like a good place to wrap things up for this show. So it'll be next week that we'll look at Longstreet's and A.P. Hill's assault on Glendale. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time is Extraordinary Circumstances, The Seven Days Battles by Brian K. Burton. Burton's book is a serviceable account of the seven days, and like all of our other book recommendations, you can find it listed on the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. As we close the show, we want to be sure to thank Jeffrey P. in the United Arab Emirates for his donation, and then we'll welcome several new members of the Strawfoot Brigade, Paul, Susan, and Mike. Just yesterday, we released the fifth and last members episode in the Jeb Stewart story arc. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Rich and I do hope you'll join us again next time when we'll continue looking at the events of June 30th, 1862. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye.